1: Hello, welcome to New Work in Digital Humanities, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. Uh, I'm Luca Scholz. I'm a lecturer in digital humanities at the University of Manchester. And this is a new series that I'm setting up together with several colleagues uh, to create a forum to discuss new books and book-length projects with a substantial digital component from across the humanities. Today, I talk with uh, Tom Mullaney, who is a professor of Chinese history at Stanford University. Uh, Tom has a very wide range of interests. Uh, He published two monographs. Uh, One was a history of the 1954 ethnic classification project, the most sweeping attempt to sort and categorize China's enormous population, and a study of how ethnicity is created in a uh, specific and highly contingent historical setting. the other one is the Chinese typewriter, which was published with um, MIT Press in 2017. which is a history of the encounters between Chinese writing, uh, which is character-based, as we know, with different forms of alphabetic universalism, from the Morse code uh, to punch cards and other systems developed with the Latin alphabet in mind, um, and in particular, the typewriter and its uh, QWERTY keyboard. Um, Tom has published many more uh, 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 Edited volumes and, and 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 articles and won a, a daunting number of prizes and and fellowships, um, but today we're going to talk about one specific project, uh, namely the Chinese Deathscape. This is a digital volume um, in Stanford University Press's Digital Project Series, which aims to offer a publication channel that confers the same level of academic credibility on digital projects as. Um, academic print books receives, and that includes, and I'm sure we're going to talk about that, um, um, academic peer review. Um, The Chinese Deathscape is a history of grave reform in China. In the past decade alone, more than 10 million corpses have been exhumed and reburied across across China. Um, And this campaign has transformed China's graveyards into sites of bitter personal, social, political, and economic contestation. And what comes to the fore in this book is that to understand China, one needs to pay as close attention to the history of the dead as to the history of the living. Um, this is, an, is, is a, a digital volume that presents essays by three historians um, in a customs designed platform and several, <clears throat> sorry, um, that seamlessly integrates um, an interactive scalable map with long form um which makes us, uh, uh, particularly interesting um, uh, book to talk about. So, uh, welcome, Tom.
0: Hi, thank you very much for having me.
1: Thanks for thanks for joining. Um, so, maybe before we start talking about the um, Deathgate book, could could you tell us something about you and your work more generally, and how um, how this particular project fits uh, fits within that?
0: Well, I'd be happy to. Uh, well, I am. Um... An historian by training an archival historian. So I, I have spent a sort of a good, (laughs) good percentage of my waking hours, uh, at least when it comes to work in one of one of a hundred different archives, whether in China or East Asia or, or globally. And, uh, so I'm, I'm a little bit of a, of an archive hound. And what I've worked on thus far, as, as you mentioned is, uh, A project, an initial project, which came out of my dissertation when I was at Columbia on the history of the Chinese Communist state's uh, approach or policies towards its ethnic minority populations. Uh, But that and that project was was also informed very heavily by by the history of science and science studies, anthropology of science. It basically was an ethnography of a team of Chinese social scientists in the fifties who were given. An unbelievable task they were they were given six months to go down to China's most ethnically diverse province and sort it all out, figure out who the government should recognize or not. they were given less time than a master's student is given to finish their master's <laughs> thesis to categorize the most ethnically uh, complex part of the world in essence um, and then the, and then I moved by way I think of the history of science, which is an enduring concern for me into a project that was more explicitly about technology, uh, the history history of information, which is an area that I that I care about a great deal and teach teach in, uh, and that brought me to the project that I'm halfway through now. So you mentioned the Chinese typewriter, which is basically a history of Chinese information technology from the 19th century to basically the Second World War, and and right now I'm just at the end of finishing the manuscript for. The sequel to that, which is the Chinese computer, which basically yeah carries on the history of that from from the Second World War until the present. So how you know so and the common question there is, as you mentioned, this puzzle: how do you how does China, which is the you know and the Chinese language, which is the one major world language whose writing system does not have an alphabet of any kind; it's it's character based. How does this language? Uh, survive first, and then thrive within a global information order that, from the 19th century, has been dominated by Europe and the United States, uh, and is premised on having an alphabet—whether Morse code, but all the way through ASCII uh, in, the, in the realm of computing—and um, uh, so that's what I'm, you know, thinking about. And and the uh, the project that became or the, I guess the origin story, I guess that would become the, the Chinese deathscape sort of cropped up in my mind. I would say halfway on that, on my intellectual journey thus far, it really s- began to take shape in my mind shortly after I finished my PhD and I started at uh, Stanford in 2006. And, and then it, this project began to take shape.
1: Right. Okay. Um, so you i suppose you hadn't done you hadn't done similar work before right this was a new this was a new subject for you was it the 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 grave relocations
0: it was it was it it in a uh, there is a a sort of underlying reason i guess uh for this project or let's call it a, an underlying root structure that on you know if you i think if one were to look at the the work i've done thus far from the, from the surface up, it it looks as if there are (laughs) lots of different kinds of trees and lots of different kinds of flowers. And it's, and it, and, 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 you know, on the face of it, there's nothing, nothing in common between a a book about Southwest China and the ethnic minorities living there. And then this other book on the history of Chinese telegraphy and Chinese typewriting, um, But, uh, and then of course the Chinese death scape, like what, what do dead bodies and typewriters and Tibetans have to do with one another, but under the, you know, I think as anyone who, who is listening, who is engaged in research knows just in their bones is that there is an underlying root structure to, to, I would say everything that any scholar does, no matter how diverse on the surface they look and, um, so, so what is that, what is that for you? <laughs> the root structure. <laughs> well, <clears throat> I think the underlying root structure that, that has, uh, for me, and this is something I only began to recognize towards the end of my time at Columbia. And, and then when I first moved from the East coast, I'm, I'm from the East coast and and I, I've lived there my whole life. I grew up there and I went to school there. And then when I moved out to California to start at Stanford, which was 2006, I I finished my PhD in 2006 and moved out here in 06 to start. Uh, I think it was at that moment that I began to recognize that the principal concern I have as a human being and also as a scholar is the question of how we disappear, how everything disappears. So in essence, a, a in essence, entropy. Uh, but it goes by many different names, of course, depending upon the discipline or the field. It could be extinction, or language death, or alienation, estrangement, social death. Um, and uh, I, I began at that moment to explore those questions. Uh, and I launched a, a kind of a small-scale workshop at stanford called project absentia which was an exploration of disappearance and i brought in you know linguists to talk about language death i i brought in one of the leading archaeologists of china to talk about not about how things are excavated but how they how things ruin you know it, uh, so angkor Wat did not just you know did not just disappear and 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 the ruins of Yin, where the, where the oracle bones were discovered in China, uh, did not simply just, you know, fall off the face of the earth. It took centuries for these things to ruin until such point that no one knew where they were, or the people who quote unquote in history mattered no longer knew where they were. But many other people, of course, did in Machu Picchu, Angkor Wat, There's lots of these examples, and um, it was a really fruitful workshop. I organized it, if I remember right, in 2008. And, um, that was the funny thing is, is that that, that workshop was the origin story of the Chinese typewriter, because my lecture for that workshop was how do Chinese characters disappear? And it was about, you know, what, how, how do, how do character Chinese there, there, there are many, yeah, there are many Chinese characters that simply fall out of existence, but, but, uh, they just, they, they're there, like they're, they're still, they're still contained in printed work, but, Literally, no one knows what their pronunciation is or what their meaning is, and I'm fascinated by that. No one banned them; they were not taboo words. They just simply fell out of the net of of they 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 exist, but they are not extant in this weird way. And um, that that essay, uh, which I never published, it was just simply a talk, was the beginning of the Chinese typewriter, the Chinese computer. And uh the Chinese deathscape oh, because that sounds like, yeah that it was it was a it was, like a, it was a transformative part moment, part. and then now now <laughs> i'm I'm working on I, I finally have decided that now is the time to sit down and write uh that book, um, which is a a more direct reflection on entropy, a more direct reflection on the question how how do we disappear um so The Deathscape Project, typewriter, computer, were, of course, they are all standalone works of scholarship and 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 collaborations. But they're also uh, base camps on on route to uh, the big climb, which is kind of entering. You know, not to extend this metaphor too much, but they were these areas of safety, and then now comes the ascent into the death the death zone <laughs> where 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 this this next thing could really fail but um i've worked out some of my you know I've, I've worked out some things here and 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 i should say for the deathscape just to make it clear uh the deathscape where it where it came from for me was uh, and i talk about this in the actual volume so i won't you know i won't revisit it too much it's in the introduction but it was a, ca- a taxi ride outside of dunhuang in Kind of North Central China, and this is where the the famous Dunhuang cave cave complex is. Uh, and I was there. Uh, I was there just on a vacation while I was working in Beijing and, and doing some kind of follow up work and rewriting of my my, my first book. And uh, it 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 was a chance conversation with a taxi driver, and I looked out the window, and I there's an expanse of desert, and I saw these kind of markers or posts in the distance. And I just simply asked, you know, what are those? And, and the gentleman responded, those are graves. So those are grave markers. And then time went by. I didn't think anything of it. Uh, and then he just kind of recommenced the conversation. He pointed out the other side of the car and said, they used to be over there. And something about that stuck in my mind um, and brought to the fore a memory from, from my childhood at some point i don't know if it was the taxi ride or not and this was when i was a, when i was a kid i grew up in the suburbs uh and i and a lot of these suburbs were sort of just carved out of what once was farmland or was was, was you know these estates or whatever and, and and i was i used to spend as much time as humanly possible in the woods and i i loved the woods and i would just go for hours and hours and by myself in the woods and I, one time i did this and i was sort of exploring and whatnot. And uh, I came across a grave with a grave, with a gravestone. It was just sort of in the midst of this, you know, this cluster of trees. There were no, there was nothing around it. There was no, there was no sign indicating what it was. And it was, if I recall, right, the grandmother of Francis Scott Key. So the author (laughs) of the, of the lyrics of the national anthem. Uh, And, you know, it was just kind of, in the middle of nowhere, and something about something about those two things really stuck with me. The the, f- the first of those, Francis Scott Greed's grandmother, was the sense that while this grave has not moved ever, like if once she was interred, you know, it, it's right. But but space has moved around it, her, it, and. And by virtue of space having shifted, and I, by space I mean that very kind of promiscuously, that's, that's not just physical space, it's, all, it's, it's, it's terrain, it's economy, it's transportation networks. It's all, but suddenly, this grave is nowhere, it's gone, but it didn't move. And, um, but then on the other side, you have this story of this massive relocation effort in China. Ten million dead bodies dug up and moved, but what I began to wonder was whether or not, prior to this purge of the dead, this purge of corpses, that China began in the in the you know in the, really in the twenty first century, if something comparable hadn't happened, which is that due to economic development and transportation changes and of course rapidly changing economy and social customs that quite literally the, the space which surrounded all of these dead bodies changed such that, and and we know this to be true, there were prior to, the, prior to this purge, there were graves in like the middle of a thoroughfare. Like where literally people were driving to the left and to the right of graves, or there are these very famous examples of, you know, a grave in the middle of an apartment complex or the grave in the middle of a or just uh, you know you're you're walking in a, in Beijing in some in some neighborhood and you turn a corner and in the end of an alley there's a grave and and it's and and so what I really wanted to try to get at and I will say that I failed but it was a useful it, this failure produced helped produce this volume and I'm proud of it and I'm, I'm really uh, amazed by the scholarship of Christian Um and of uh, Snyder Reinke and everyone that contributed to it. But for me, I actually failed because what I really wanted to try to get at was the question of the, these, um, this te- these, te- these kind of tectonic shifts which preceded the purge of bodies. Because, yeah, that's, that's, that's what... And then that's why I knew like once I got out of that taxi ride and once I went back to Beijing and once I came back home, you know, I had to do all of those things you do. I I tried to learn like, okay, what is the Chinese (laughs) vocabulary for the relocation of graves? And I tried, I tried and guessed at what I would say. And then eventually I tuned into the right terminology. And then I ran that terminology through like databases and newspaper databases and primary source, you know, repositories and eventually i found what i was looking for and the scale of it like within third, third once i found the term once i found the terminology qianfen uh, once i found this word and a few other words within 30 minutes of extremely basic google searches like in my bathrobe i had tabulated by just in those 30 minutes somewhere in the order of 2 million dead bodies that had been moved and I just started, and, then, and, I, and, I could, and I knew that if I just were to keep going, I would, I would find more and more and more. Um, and that's the moment when I said, there are limits to archival research in the way that I am trained to do it. I cannot get my head around or even think of the questions to be asked when we're talking about millions upon millions upon millions of instances of this Um, and I could have gone the route. I could have said, okay, I'm going to choose a case study and I'm going to do one place. And it's like, no, no, that's, that's not (laughs) this. It's the scale of this. That is so disturbing to me, both kind of personally, but also let's say intellectually. And that's when I turned seriously to digital humanities. Right. Maybe 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 there are tools there. Yeah.
1: Right. So, So maybe let's talk about the, um, the data that is at the center of this um, of this map that the that this 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 project is is built around. H- how did you get that data? Was it you sitting down and googling googling those keywords?
0: <laughs> pretty oh. m- pretty much. So there's two there are two genres of data and they serve different uh, purposes in the research. One are in essence notifications or more or less like little classified ads uh, that would uh, be published in advance of a grave relocation in order to notify the public, the relevant public that, uh, you know, be it known that by April of this year, all of the graves, uh, you know, north of Orchard Lane and south of the reservoir and east of the such and such, you know, nursery school and west of the airport are going to be relocated for the purposes of developing a highway or an airport or a coal mine or whatever it is. And these, and uh, so these classified at, these notifications were in theory, I mean, they're, they they required by law. So prior to one of these relocations, if someone was following official regulations, they had to publish one of these things in order to let people know, because it said, uh, you know, uh, the call this number, and uh and we and we'll tell you what the process is and maybe there's like a very small stipend to help you pay for the cost it was the it was actually the families or next of kin's responsibility primarily to hire an excavation team and and to hire the people that were going to exhume the bodies um and then they would receive a in many cases a paltry sum from the government to help offset that it never came anywhere near you know paying for that cost uh but the key was is that if if, if if someone did not respond by a certain date, the government would quote unquote treat this as an untended grave, and then we would do it ourselves and so um, so it, it, the long and the short of it is that there are uh, hundreds, thousands of these notifications in, in peppered throughout uh, Chinese newspapers large and small, and so one one process was at first myself and then I realized it was beyond my capacity and I, I needed to work with research research assistants but in the beginning it was just me searching one by one by one through these and transcribing the data from it from hand that at one point I thought to myself hmm you know this is extremely regulated regular language uh, the text is short there's uh, maybe something like natural language processing would help with this I talked with some people about that we kind of Spent. I mean, this is this is something that I think your listeners would benefit from listening to. And anyone who's done a DH project knows there's, you know, there's a lot of. I'll, I'll just say it. there's a there's a whole lot of wasted time, you know, tr- <laughs> trying. I I don't mean the, I don't mean the process of data entry. That's that's tedious right. but essential. But like yeah. there's there are these moments where you're like maybe we could do this, and then you oh, yeah. si- six months later you're like I could have done it by now. <laughs> and that's that's what happened. Like we I, right. I sort of talked with a lot of people about what you know, could I get something, an automated process for this? And at the end of the day, I realized, okay, a thousand, a thousand of these documents, which is a lot, I still could have done in the time that it would have taken to like (laughs) train something to do it. Cause it's not, you know, we're not talking about millions of millions of documents. So, uh, so I wasted a lot of time and then eventually just decided to do it by hand and like Google Excel doc. Uh, and you know, just, Turned it into into structured data, and uh, but the, but here is the key: is that those those documents contain a wealth of information, but they contain no information about the number of bodies. It just says all they say is every grave in this region, in this in this in this area, which is which we will describe to you, uh, is is are going to be moved, and so a second genre of data were uh, either kind of a, a hodgepodge of either newspaper reports or official government reports or kind of statistical reports that would, that would, that would uh, summarize that last month 13,000 bodies were removed from such and such region. And here, and here came the challenges, is is then came the challenge of trying to see is this newspaper report over here the same as this, this uh, notification from six months earlier. It seems as if the region is the same, and therefore, can we assign that number three, three hundred, you know, thirteen thousand bodies to that grave? We we started referring to them as grave relocation events because a grave relocation event could be one body, it could be two hundred thousand bodies. So uh, there are m- the, the vast majority of grave relocation events in the database. We do not have. We do not have a sense of the scale. And uh, so uh, the scale, you know, I've, we've been talking about 10 million bodies, 15 million bodies trying to give a range. And the reason for that range is because there are so many of these events that we do not have, and we probably never will have the, uh, the data for. Um, and then some listeners might wonder, this question comes up, Do what about data on where these bodies once cremated because that was also part of part of this policy is that we're not going to do land burial for these again uh, where do they go and that I don't I, I know of the I know a great deal about the creation of new um, kind of columbaria or gravesites, sites but in terms of where these 10 to 15 million corpses were relocated that I do not know there and um, there's no there's no way within human capacity even with computational techniques to determine that. Cause that would basically involve 10 million interviews. I once was, on a, <laughs> I once was on a panel where I was describing this and I was on this panel next to, uh, it was, a, it was an interesting, it was an interesting discussion, but there was, um, there was someone on the panel who, uh, you know, we were up there and in, in front of the audience. And, and I think I had just, I think I just come back from the lectern and, uh, the person leaned over to me or like wrote a memo saying you know have you have you notified the families that uh about this research and it's like no i have not i i I haven't called all fifteen million families yet that's on my that's on my to do list and I, I I didn't put it so abruptly but i said i said i said no." and the person sort of feigned a, a, this kind of almost like self-righteous shock and it's like do you realize this do you realize the scale of what we are talking about here um and so it, but this is this is the int- this i think is intellectually productive and in some sense that particular exchange wasn't that was just absurd but but in but in general like computational techniques and these kinds of you know these scalar questions really do uh push to the breaking point the kinds of conceptual models we have in our head when we're talking about conventional humanistic and even social scientific approaches to things like um you know I did not want to write I could have and I but I did not want to write the history of one family going through relocation there is if if anyone does want work that is exquisite, I mean, to me the most exquisite research that I have seen of late, especially in the Chinese context, everyone should as soon as possible Google Ruth Toulson, T O U L S O N, first name Ruth, um, ethnographer by training, just one of the most. Uh, she's 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 amazing. She is she actually is a to my knowledge and. If, if she's ends up listening and I get anything wrong, please correct me, but a certified, she has certification and training in embalming and the preparation of bodies, because I believe maybe her, her father had been a professional in this, you know, in a coroner or something. I don't know the exact legacy, but she, she actually had spent and, and knew her way around this process. And she would, she not only did ethnographies in Chinese and, and um, in, in the, uh, in sort of uh sites that undertook embalming, that were the professionals coroners and professionals but also did ethnographies during excavation like she was in the grave so so there is this work and it's and it's there and um and i i can't uh, i'm i'm i am i am i am like i don't know who the number one card carrying fan of, of ruth the ruth toulson fan club is but i i'm in the top 10 (laughs) <laughs> but that's not, that's not what I wanted to do, uh, because right. it's to me, what was so disturbing about it was the scale.
1: Scale. Yeah.
0: And, um, so, and that's, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, and that is, that is, I mean, I guess that is where, um, that is, that is where the, 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 the platform in a sense really, really, um, mm-hmm. makes that scale visible in a sense, right? The, the, so maybe can you, can you, can you talk a little bit about, about that, about, how, um, how how you how you how you came to develop then this platform and how it worked to to present this this data and combine it with the text that you have.
0: I'd be happy to. So the first thing that is most important is to say is I did not build the platform and I and all credit goes to first and foremost David McClure who who, who co-wrote the, the colophon in the in the volume. Yeah. Um, and then the team. At uh, the broader team at the Center for Interdisciplinary Digital Research, uh, based in the Stanford University Libraries, uh, just an amazing team. So David really began the project uh, of the of this particular platform, the platform that became the final one, and then he went on to MIT. Uh, he to, to to he's there now, finishing his PhD. He's he's one of these gurus that you know. Eh, I mean, he's 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 known the world over in the DH world and. And <laughs> the best is yet to come. It's amazing. So yeah, he has worked David, on, on, a, on a whole number of fascinating on a whole book. number of things, just all over the yeah. So David is the person to um, to really shine a light on for the platform, and um, and and then a variety of really brilliant people. Uh, I can't I won't list them all, but they are in our acknowledgements in at this at cider, and then uh, the and then another. Important shout out is to Cesta, which is really the birthplace, the center for uh, uh, the center for spatial and textual analysis at Stanford, which is a separate body at Stanford, which is where the the real legwork of the project began. Um, this is where all the research assistants were hired and all the data entry happened, and a lot of those initial conversations, some of them dead, some of them dead ends, and some of them extremely productive, all took place, uh, and that really put us in this position where we had a proof of concept and we could go after real funding and we could really put together a proposal for something larger scale. Uh, So, so, um, but the, so let me, yeah, I can talk about the platform. The platform, when I first dreamt of what I wanted, I did not have any particular form in mind, meaning um, I did not have a vision for, what exactly I wanted it to, it to look like or its functionality. Because at the outset, to me, the platform is, was not, and actually is not, uh, its primary purpose is not a presentational thing. It is rather an exploratory thing. I wanted a, I wanted something that would enable me to get this phenomenon in in front of me in some abstraction so that I could, Start to ask questions, not in order to explain the answers to a reader. I just wanted something that would allow me to generate questions. Uh, bec- again, because the scale of it is such that I was beyond my limits and I couldn't I didn't even know what I mean I could I could I could just brainstorm questions, uh, you know just off the top, but but in terms of like what is the actual problem here? Why do I care about this? I I, I, needed, to, I needed a tool and that was there was a there was a long process um early early in the process which i think many people in the dh world can can understand and especially many humanists who are trying to collaborate with with um with those who actually are developers and programmers and systems builders can can <laughs> can can understand is that the initial conversations before um, before really cider and before David and all of this, but just very early conversations I was having with a variety of people, I kept being asked, "What do you want me to build?" And I would say, "I don't know," and then and and it would just sort of that bounce back and forth so many times that there was a there was there were a good number of years of just real almost no movement on the project because, understandably, the idea was, "Okay, you're the China historian, you're the." You're the, the, almost like you're the client. And, 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 and so I'm, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm helping. So what do you want me to build? And, um, uh, but there was a mismatch there because, and I think any historians or humanists listening and social scientists will know it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't go that way in the early parts of a research project. You, 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 you don't have, you don't know what it is because you don't know what your questions are and you need, and you don't even know how you would go about answering these. So the beginning of this was, I I knew I wanted a platform that was valuable for someone who wanted to just explore, but, but, but also, and especially as we sort of moved down the line and uh, especially as David um, took the lead and, and joined, and joined the project of something that would bring together narrative and space so that once in essence a platform in which you are never not somewhere in space um to get us out of the the print format of just inset maps uh and um and so you know i think if any if anyone has seen this platform who's listening to this podcast or goes and looks at it i you know you could just say it this way it's not it's not very snazzy. It's not, uh, there's not a lot of bells and whistles to it. It is, it is extremely simple at first glance. But, uh, and I can speak to, to, to David and the team at, at Cider about this. A tremendous amount of work went into making it so elegant, seamless, and simple because the goal was, can we just constantly be um, attaching narrative to, to place? Uh, And so it's, it's not spatial history. This is not ArcGIS. This is not, you know, we didn't do anything that would count as spatial analysis. This is not a spatial analysis platform at all. It is a, it is a spatial, is a narrative spatial exploration and publication platform. I would say that's, that's kind of how I would call it. Eventually the platform got, became known as grapple the graves platform and um, and that you know in the end just could not have been could not, still to this it just can't couldn't be more happy and more appreciative of of this work uh, that 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 everyone that so many people David and Glenn Worthy um, the team at cider the team at Sest just so many people uh, built this so many people built this yeah um, yeah that. yeah I, think, I mean i
1: find the, i find it a fascinating a fascinating platform in a sense and i would yeah i, I think uh, it's a uh, I i mean yes any any kind of narrative that you have that has a strong spatial dimension you could definitely see how you could narrate um yeah there's there's a lot you could do with this kind of format i think in that sense it's really it's really exciting um i mean one thing that i meant to ask about um so this is a this is a peer-reviewed project, right? Can, yes. can Can you say something about how that worked for you? And was, was that a different, having a project like this uh, peer-reviewed? Was that a different experience from having, say, like an edited volume or a monograph
0: peer-reviewed, like a print book? I think that uh, I would love to. This is, I think, one of the most important takeaways for me and for anyone who's listening who either has a lot of experience in DH or is thinking of becoming involved in some capacity. So uh, the, the peer review process was uh, enlightening, and also there, there there are many challenges to peer reviewing and re- quote unquote revising for peer review a digital project of this nature than a print book, a print article, a print volume. So yeah, so the basically the you know if the, if the first phase of this project Gray's project was at, based at SESTA at Stanford, the Center for Spatial Textual Analysis, and was really the the, the really hardcore, rigorous legwork of data entry and problem solving and trying to figure out the next step. Then the second phase really uh, was um, spearheaded by the team at Cider, the Center for Interdisciplinary Digital Research based at the Stanford Libraries. Then the third phase of this was when Stanford University Press uh, became involved. And I, I don't, I can't say that I, I I don't quite remember exactly the uh, the connection or how this connection was made. I think if I remember right, it was by way of Stu Snydman, then at Cider, um, and, and Glenn Worthy, then at Cider, uh, who made me aware of this, this initiative at Stanford University Press, uh, funded by way of the Mellon Foundation, to venture into what they were called peer well, I think it's been sort of shorthand, peer-reviewed Born Digital Project Scholarship. It's like, wow, okay. So so let so I, I learned about this. And the first thing or first or second thing that went through my mind uh was, and this connects back to the earlier part of our discussion with you know what this project was for me, which was this is all about disappearance and entropy and and um but i I'll be honest that you know at that point, this is already five, six years, I think, into the project by this point i um I was in a very awkward kind of intellectual position, and I would summarize it as follows: this project was becoming famous before I knew what it was, and I, and I don't mean famous like it was in the New York Times, or something but famous like uh, funding agencies were falling down to pay for it and you know, and 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 people wanted me to speak about it, and I got invited. You know, things, and of course, then I was I was also you know I'm genuinely genuinely interested in computational techniques, um, so I launched Digital Humanities Asia, this project at Stanford, and but I was in this strange position where the I felt in my in my in my heart of hearts that it would be inappropriate for me. At this point, I was the only one, and I was the only historian involved. At this point, Christian wasn't involved, um, Jeff Snyder Ranky wasn't involved, and there were to be, um, there were supposed to be two other contributors. No one else was involved, and so this question is like, oh my gosh, is it? This is an amazing opportunity with Stanford University Press. I definitely should consider this, but the problem is, I can't write this. I, I, it, it makes no sense intellectually for me to try to produce a monograph sized or an edited volume sized thing based on myself because I'm still figuring out what it is I want to do. Um I had my song and dance for any talks I gave, and I had my song and dance for different, you know, um constituencies, but I did not feel satisfied with what I my actual horse was in this race, which is about disappearance. I still haven't found the answer to to that question. And so that's when I said, okay, let's 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 be smart about this and um there are so many amazing scholars who long before long before i ventured long before my cab ride long before my cab ride in dunhuang have been asking questions about the politics of death the politics of the body about uh religiosity and the afterlife i mean you know like Every other place on earth, there are many scholars who, who, who study this in the Chinese context. Maybe what it would be possible to do is bring more people to the table and make this volume more, uh, more straightforwardly, quote unquote, about China. So it's it's a, 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 my vision for why I'm you know about disappearance and all these things i i have to I have to put that aside for a moment and what i what what I can do now is this we have this incredible platform we have this incredible team um, we have we have the funding, we have the possibility for a you know a venue for this and um and i don't have the ego to say it's got to be just me so let me just put aside my own concerns for a second reach out to some people educate myself more about scholars working in other parts of this and reach out and so i reached out to people um some of whom i, I a few of them i knew i, I knew christian ario before but i didn't know personally um anyone else we put together a conference panel we got started to get to know each other and uh, you know and i broached this question i said you know Here's this thing. Here's this platform. This is my data. I don't know what your data looks like. I don't know if this is an appropriate platform for for you. But what do you think? And 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 people and a, and a small cluster of people said, Yeah, you know, I, I think I have a piece I'm working on that would be relevant to this. That has a lot of you know. I basically said there has to be a lot of spatial data. You can, you know, this is it's got to be a piece of your scholarship that would make sense for this platform. And um and and what do you think? And there was excitement. We put together, you know, uh, abstracts for what this might look like, and that beca- that became the moment when two things happened. One is that the volume became more squarely about China, so it kind of fits in that part of the bookstore now. And second is that we we do at that we did at that point have a sufficient uh, substance, intellectual substance, to say that this is a volume. It's not just an one essay or two essays. It's it's something. And, um, and then it was, you know, it was a long process. It was, you know, putting an edited volume together is already extremely challenging in the print world. It is way more challenging in the digital world, way more challenging. Um, and so, you know, the long and the short of it, so it was a, it was sort of, it was a very difficult ride. There were time constraints from the press. There were time constraints from my own funding that I had at, at Stan at, at hand. Um, and not, a, not all of us sort of, had a chance to make it to the end of the marathon. Some people for, had to back out for their own reasons, but basically, by by the end of it, uh, we had this volume, and we had um, you know we submitted it as a as a proposal. I think at that point, when we submitted it to SUP Stanford University Press, we had my essay loaded up in the platform. And then we had the summaries or the abstracts of the other contributors. Those were not loaded in, but we had it. So we had a kind of draft platform, a full draft essay, and then abstracts. That, that bundle went out to, if I'm, I, I'm pretty sure that my memory serves me here, seven peer reviewers. It was either okay. six or seven. That, I, I don't know about you, I have never had an edited oh, volume uh, or a book go out to uh, seven peer reviewers. <laughs> the most I've ever experienced is three. Yeah. For you know, and that for articles... So why seven peer reviewers. Wow. The, and this brings us to, sorry, I'm, I'm so, such a long-winded person, but this brings us to the core point because half of these reviewers had to review the platform and half of them had to review the scholarship. So, because, you know, it's not fair to say that a China, whether a China anthropologist or historian, also has to be able to, uh, ex- you know, talk about the user interface. Uh, now, I think every reviewer was equally allowed to raise questions about the platform or the, the content. But uh, so we got, we received six or seven reader reports, which was <laughs> most, you know, which was immense. And then we had to write. Oh, it was immense. And then we had to write the, the, the editor's response. But this is, you know, for anyone that's gone through the publication process, I actually just um, circulated some news about this on my, my YouTube channel about, you know, what this thing called the author's response letter that very few that first time authors don't know exist until the, until the day comes when the press says, okay, here are your reader reports. We need your author response letter. And you say like, what the hell is that? It's like, Oh, this is, this is the, the, the final critical piece of you getting published. You better do a good job. And it's like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know. But anyway, we had to write we had to write the response, which is anyone you know who's gone through the process knows. It's like, okay, summarize the praise, summarize the criticism, thematize it out, and then say what you're gonna do, which which of these which of these recommendations you're going to follow, which of them you're not, and why. And and then, you know, press is gonna take platform and the reader reports and the editor's or author's response letter and a summary, probably cover letter by the the main acquisitions editor. And that's what gets submitted to the advisory board. And they're the ones who vote the editorial board. They're the ones who vote on whether or not you get a contract that just the, just writing the editor's response took like two months. It, It was just because we had to talk about, um, well, I'll put it more personally. I could not make any promises on behalf of my colleagues in Cider. I couldn't say, I couldn't just be like, sure, we'll add it, we'll add a, you know, we'll add a save button or <laughs> we'll add a back home button. Well, oh yeah, sure, we'll 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 change the slider bar. Like I'm not I don't have the credentials to make those kinds of promises and I don't know if those things are easy simple fixes or tremendously difficult deceptively um, you know deceptively complex ones and so what that that response more than more than anything was toggling back between the entire team figuring out what everyone felt was reasonable and comfortable in order to you know to say we're going to do uh, and of course the team at cider has other projects they have many other people they're working with uh, who are working on other projects and they have to you have to be very careful about about those commitments. So the long and short of it, we submit this, and then we get the contract. But now comes the interesting part, and this one to me is the most fascinating. In a print book, in say like I write a book, I wrote the Chinese typewriter, I wrote the manuscript. You know, I I got my reader reports, and I say what I, you know what I'm going to do. Well, I don't. The labor that I am going to put into those revisions, I don't, I don't charge anybody for those. I just eat the cost of that. That is not the case in digital humanities. If someone is going to fix the slider bar or change the interface, uh, what I re- one of the things I respect the most about about the developers who are in this world is that they're like, uh, okay, let me go ahead and get out my calculator. Okay, yeah, that'll cost you ten thousand dollars. Like, <laughs> you know, they're, uh, you know, like that's oh, that's a five thousand dollar fix, or that's a thirty thousand dollar fix, and so suddenly we got we had made all of these promises, got the contract, now we need to do it, and that's when from various circles, understandably, began to hear, oh, it's like, okay, um, who's going to pay for this? And I said, well, I'm out of my, my, the funds that I have, you know, I've spent a lot of time writing grants and getting funds, but those were dried up. There was nothing more to speak of. Uh, and I can't do these things. So, so it, it came to this. So there, there were these, there were these uh, learning <laughs> moments in the process that no one foresaw. No one like I didn't foresee it. Uh, Stanford university press didn't foresee it. The cider didn't foresee because it's new because again it's a it's we're using we're using a model that already exists which is the print book model and applying it to this other model this peer-reviewed born digital most of it works as off the shelf some of it just does not work so someone in some office somewhere totally separate from me made the math work and those and the changes to the platform were made and the final project was submitted. Um, the, the other part of it, and i sorry to go on to this, but I think this is actually relevant, uh, for anyone who's printed, who, for anyone who's published an article, a print article or a print book, you'll know that you, uh, you know, there's a copy editor at the press and you will, you receive this, this either word document initially, and then a PDF document. And, uh, you can say, uh, yeah, that, that change looks okay, or that change looks okay, and you can just say you can send it back and say I agree with all of these. Or, well, this platform is basically on the back end, more or less like HTML markup language, and um, you know any syntactical errors, just like in the, you know regular programming, breaks the system. It, it it makes the links not work. It makes certain things. So lo- the long story short is there was no copy editor here i personally had to go back into the markup language and change every italicization change every footnote change every uh you know every text if the text if the if one of my contributors wanted to add another map or another footnote then i had to physically add that one and then add one to every subsequent footnote Like, so all of the things that we take for granted that someone at the press does, you have to do (laughs) personally, if you're using anything that is, you know, involves either markup language or behind the scenes, certainly behind the scenes program, there's no one at a press that can do this for you. So So that process took months, something that in a book for me, for the author, takes a week. Took months because I physically had to go in and do it. So lots of lots of, lots of things to learn, and and I say this because I want to see I want to see this trend continue. I think that peer review is the is the is the is the is the silver bullet to resolving this ridiculous question about whether or not digital scholarship is you know deserves the same attention. Yes, it does. It, it is scholarship. It is real. But I agree that short of peer review, it is impossible to distinguish between what is a blog, what is a blog or a personal website versus what is authoritative work. And, and the great thing is, is that the peer review model can be applied. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I sometimes I daydream about there being a kind of independent, non, not-for-profit, you know, governed, governed organization that is basically an independent peer review organization that is there as a kind of, it, you don't have to use it, but you can use it. And um, and in essence, you know, if you want to quote unquote self-publish, you don't want to go through one of the classical routes of a, of a, of a print journal, or you don't necessarily want to, you don't have something that you think is appropriate for uh, a press or is not you know you're having trouble finding a press that wants to invest in it why not have this option of an independent body that goes through the process of peer review and if they reject you if the peer review process that they submit through it comes back and says no then author you are more than you know you're more than welcome to pu- publish that on your website but you cannot add the the whatever the symbol that says you went through this peer review process like um, I, I think that peer, I think, I think, well, yeah, I think peer review should, I think the majority of peer review should happen through journals and presses, but I think that there should be an independent option for peer review as well so that we can go, we have different uh, options at our disposal, but we do not sacrifice rigor. Right. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's, that is, um, that is
1: super interesting i'm sure um, this 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 experience that you had with the peer review here is something that a lot of people will be interesting, in, in, interested in um, so we're almost we're, we're coming to the to the end of the podcast and maybe maybe a good well i'm, I'm going to ask you what what you're working on now and what what is next for you but maybe a good a good a good uh, a good question to conclude is is uh, I, I wonder what this meant um, what this meant intellectually for you. Do you feel that, so writing for instance, this, this your, your essay in this in this project or devising the whole project, did that change the way that you think or that you thought and wrote about this issue? Would you, would you have written differently about it if it was and thought differently about it, if it was a regular print edited volume? Um, or, or would you say in, in a sense, it's actually fairly similar? It's just, it just looks differently.
0: Well, I, I do think it's different um, in one way in particular. And actually, this is an, another opportunity to sort of uh, alert anyone who, who, who wants to jump in this pool or, or, uh, or has and, and face the similar challenge. One thing that was really fascinating was both for myself and for uh, the, the other contributing authors, all of our first drafts were for lack of a better word very printy and what i mean mm-hmm. is right. um, we we were all writing in a way that was conducive to having you know uh, i don't know uh, two or three maps at right. various yeah. seconds yeah and so what that yeah. means is is that we would you know we'd go blah 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 and then we'd have one yeah. paragraph <laughs> in which in which we condensed a whole lot of spatial information and then we would have a map, well, you know, we yeah. did, we, one would then have a map right after that paragraph that basically contained all of those references. And then we would go blah, blah, you know, prose, 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 and then another densely, spatially densely populated paragraph, and then another map. What I had to do for myself, and what I also had to ask the contributors to do as the revision process, was to distribute space throughout the essays. Um, so that more or less there was never, never a paragraph that was, that did not have space, a spatial reference in it, ideally. Um, so that, so that when you're moving through the essays and for anyone who goes to the platform and sees this, as you follow the argument and as you're clicking on the various reference points, you are always kind of moving through space at different scales. You might be just within the city of Shanghai as in Christian's uh, work, or kind of, in my essay, you're like jumping all over, uh, all over the country, but that's a very different way of writing because you can't write that way in print. You can't distribute all of these references in print because otherwise you'd have to have like 200 maps, (laughs) you know, individual maps in your essay. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's, uh, it is, it, I think it contributed to a mode of, thinking or writing that was the way I described it to Jeff and to Christian and to Glenn and others was like a sort of cinematic approach that had to think cinematographically a little bit about this that, and I, and I, and it's, it was quite literal. Like I had to ask, for example, Christian, um, okay, you know, here are your spatial references. Now that they're distributed, what zoom level, do you want for each of these references? Because the platform allows for different levels of zoom. Do you want? Is this a close-up shot? Yeah, yeah. Is this a wide-angle shot? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and you really there's really this this strong visual element. Yeah, in yeah. There. yeah. And, and and in certain cases, you know, I noticed that we'd have three references right in a row that were either extremely close together geographically yeah. or yeah. all at yeah. the same zoom level, and it's like, well, this is uh, this is not can we change that? Is it possible to adjust it so that we're we're moved through space? Like, can we can we insert one more reference in between these three that brings us to a different part of the city, or can we can we zoom in at this point? And and suddenly it became a little bit more like um, you know film than prose. And now, but but I've taken I think I've taken that back with me to the realm of pure print because I think that that make, helps for better writing anyway if if you know for lack of a better word if you're if you're writing in a in a conventional print book and your zoom level is always the same and you're always like you know in one place and you're not moving the reader can feel that uh and and you should be zooming in and zooming out for you know i'm using that both literally and metaphorically yeah yeah yeah. So i think that that probably did uh stick with me and i'm sure there are other there are other examples but that one comes to mind yeah now well, that's fascinating
1: that sounds i didn't i didn't realize that but now that you say it it's actually um i can totally see what you mean it's it's definitely it's an incredibly yeah it, it is you have the, the spatial references are incredibly dense and you can see how you have to choreograph that and in, and in, in, in a in a way yeah so so yeah, so that's that's um, so that's fascinating. So what about the? So I, I gather the next project is going to be the the history of the
0: uh, Chinese computer. Um, right. So uh, I, have, I have I guess there are four books I'm in the midst oh, right. Of right now. The Chinese computer that's good. That's um, going to come out with MIT Press. Uh, I'm I'm in the midst of a uh, a sort of survey history of modern China for Cambridge University Press. I am in the beginning stages of a project that does not have a home yet, called Hot Metal Empire, and it's about, uh, in essence, it, it, it's the story of type design, uh, typography and type design for for non-Latin scripts. Uh, so not just Chinese, but also like Arabic and Devanagari and other and various non-Roman scripts, uh, centered in a company in in Brooklyn in the turn of the century the Mergenthaler Linotype company who as as you can tell from the title is the developer of the linotype which is the machine that brings the era of gutenberg to an end of cold, cold metal type to an end and replaces it with this technology hot uh, hot metal composing but i i focus on the on the art department or the drawing office of that company and the the young women mainly who worked there in their 20s and who on Monday would be responsible for drawing letters of the Arabic alphabet. The very next day of Japanese katakana. The very next day of some Latin font. The very next day uh, Armenian. The very next day, and yet these young women, and one woman in particular, who was responsible for quite a number of of the fonts that end up in newspapers all over the world during the 20th century, spoke none of these languages. And so it's a quite it's a it's a project on design history. Also, you know, information, technology, language, but cross-cultural, kind of transcultural history and, um, and, and semiotics, I would say. So that's called Hot Metal Empire. And that one is still, that one is, I'm very excited about that one. That's, that's actually kind of the one that, that got me the Guggenheim. So that, that's one I'm ext- extremely excited about. And then um, the fourth is, uh, well, the fourth is the big one is is how does everything disappear hmm the entropy yeah the entropy. yeah well that sounds like a that sounds like a,
1: a fascinating a fascinating uh well fascinating writing i guess and fascinating reading ahead for i, for, I, love, for... My <laughs> I <truly laughs> love my job i
0: truly love my job
1: yeah, well, you you can tell. Well, thanks a lot, Tom. That was a really um, that was a really that was really interesting. Um,
0: um, I should I should probably add that you have a, you have a YouTube channel, right? That you yeah uh, yeah yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I would love if people would stop by. It's it's um it's just YouTube.com slash Tom Mullaney, just my name, and uh, it's uh, the kind of. Kind of channel name uh, is First Gen Professor, and in essence, it's a bunch of videos on how to navigate an ac- a career in academia. So that's everything, really, from well, undergraduate, but certainly graduate, graduate school, all the way through emeriti and death. <laughs> it's just, and it's some, you know, it's, I try to try to help people out with with things I've learned along the way, uh, and um, it's kind of irreverent. But I, I, I post a video about every about every week. And uh, you know I'm having a lot of fun with it, and um, yeah, if 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 uh, people want to stop by uh, and, and and take a look, that would be great.
1: Yeah, that sounds uh, that sounds good. Well, thanks so much for, for the interview, and um, yeah, look forward. Well, we'll will will we'll, uh, yeah, look forward to to reading to reading all the books that are that are in the works. Thank
0: you, Luca.